Hola y bienvenidos a Flashback Flicks. Mi llamo Ricky. Y soy Grayson. Y hoy tenemos subtítulos. We have to go back. All right. If our calculations are correct, um, we didn't butcher that too bad. We didn't butcher it any less than the captain got butchered. Spoilers oh, right off the bat. With reckless abandon. Didn't even uh, say what we're reviewing yet. We didn't. I uh, could have been talking about Captain Crunch. Is that before or after the Oops All Berries fiasco? Oh, it was concurrent. Oh, okay. I know what you're yes. talking about. This is actually the second movie in a row where the captain gets butchered. Uh, the first one being last week with The Breakfast Club when Ali Sheedy takes a big bite of her sandwich. <laughs> Way to tie the two together. I'm impressed. I made it work. <laughs> Everyone listening, we are reviewing the 2006 fantasy wartime movie, uh, Pan's Labyrinth, directed by the imaginative uh, Mexican filmmaker Guillermo del Toro. Now, you may be thinking that we're doing this because Shape of Water just got nominated for a ton of Oscars. Yeah, uh, that, that would no. make more sense than ours. That would make sense. The reason, because you know that last Maze Runner movie's coming out. Oh, that's right. That This is tentpole programming. You know no. that indie movie that came out in 2006? <laughs> Because we already reviewed Labyrinth. And forgot this one was in Spanish. Yep. I don't know why it wouldn't be. It takes place during the Spanish Civil War. And actually, there's a fun fact about that. But before we get into that, Grayson, uh, 2006 might not feel like that long ago. No, it does. Uh, <laughs> uh, but let me give you some uh, fun facts about the pop culture of 2006. 12 years in the past. <laughs> 2006 was the year where Hannah Montana debuted on the Disney Channel, uh, introducing Miley Cyrus to the world. Facebook became open to anyone over the age of 13, and Twitter.com was launched. That means if you went to the domain Twitter.com forward slash flashback flicks, you'd get nothing in 2005, <laughs> but 2006, also nothing, because... We're a relatively new podcast. You get nothing. <laughs> you stole fizzy lifting drinks. And very relevant to the podcast, though created in the year 2000, Blu-ray discs became widely available in 2006. And I don't know if you knew this, they can contain up to five times more information than a DVD. Whoa, you wouldn't steal a car. <laughs> But I would smuggle five DVDs into a Blu-ray. Wow. I remember the big debate was whether or not to buy Lost Season 3 on Blu-ray or HD DVD. What bet did you make? Uh, I just guessed that streaming was going to be around. And oh. I said, oh, wait. No, I bought it on uh, normal DVD. <laughs> Hard the stop. And Way to go. I wanted to leave it, uh, you know lingering just like the actual end of loss yeah no i great. like the end of loss i don't want to say that <laughs> cut it out cut it out get it out of here i want to be supportive i wanted it to have a satisfying conclusion just like the real lost way to go <laughs> and lastly google purchases youtube for 1.65 billion dollars in stock so that was wow. the climate of 2006 and in its midst 
uh, Guillermo del Toro decides to, in between his fame um, and notoriety from making Hellboy and Hellboy 2 colon The Golden Army, oh. he decided to make a film that was a lot darker and a lot more Spanish, set in 1944 Spain, Pan's Labyrinth. If you've never seen this movie, um, this is going to be very confusing. But imagine Alice in Wonderland meets Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Meets Narnia on Acid. Yes, meets the Brothers Grimm. That's Pan's Labyrinth for you. And the original Spanish title is El Labir Labyrinto? Yep, Del Fauno. Fauno. Uh, so would you mind saying it, Grayson? Because you know... I think I just did. <laughs> You're right, you did. Um, and I, mean, I could just say it with confidence. Yeah, like... go ahead. Can you, say that? Can you say the title with confidence? El Labyrinto Del Fauno. Very good. Uh, and it is a modern-day fairy tale, complete with fairies, uh, secret tests of character and monsters, and not all of them supernatural. A uh, brief synopsis is that the movie is set in 1944, just after the Spanish Civil War, with Spain's democratically elected socialist government overthrown by Francisco Franco's phalangists, um, or Spanish fascists, and the new government... Uh, attempting to weed out the last traces of the resistance. Now, the story centers on Ophelia, an only child whose widowed mother, Carmen, has agreed to marry the ruthless Captain Vidal to provide for them. In turn, he expects her to bear him a son. And during this time, Ophelia maybe imagines that she is actually a long-lost princess of the underworld. And she has to go through these three different tests to prove that her soul has not been lost to the mortal world, uh, kind of like the uh, the heroic acts of Hercules uh, in order to prove his worthiness. That's basically the movie in a nutshell. Um, if you ignore all the war, sad stuff, and extreme graphics, uh, going into this movie, we didn't realize two things. One, um, 100% uh, in Spanish. Uh, two, 100% uh, uh, rated R. So a lot of things to me uh, came to a, a surprise. Um, in an interview, De Toro stated that it's sort of a sister movie to another movie that I made called The Devil's Backbone, which was already set in the Civil War in Spain. And I dealt with brutality and innocence. And I think this movie deals with the same two issues. What happens to children in war? And in this case, it's after the war. So thinking about it, I thought it would be a movie where you could create a fantasy world that was real and sometimes as scary or as dangerous as the real world. Uh, it made its premiere um, in the independent uh, film circuit, so it went to a lot of festivals. Uh, when it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, it received a 22-minute like applause after the film. Wow. And uh, during its limited release in the United States, the film made 5.4 million. And as of uh, March, 2007, it grossed over 37 million in North America and grossed 80 million worldwide. And it became the highest grossing Spanish language film in the U S just of all time. Um, it was made on the very, very modest budget of $19 million. And it originally was going to cost a lot more money um, 
because of two really cool creative things that I definitely want to add, Guillermo del Toro turned down offers to double the production budget if the movie were to be made in English. Wow. Right? Yeah. And um, and this is also to allow him to have creative control and... Um, and he didn't want the movie to kind of be compromised in any way, uh, especially with the translations. In fact, he did all the subtitles in the movie. He not only like turned down the budget to have it in English, but he did all the subtitling because he didn't like the way his other movie, Devil's Backbone, was subtitled. So he had a very specific vision and he was not going to let it be anything other than that oh that's crazy absolutely and uh, he even turned down the chance to direct the lion the witch and the wardrobe to work on pan's labyrinth i just randomly made that narnia joke <laughs> yeah it's connected yeah um during the middle of pan's labyrinth um he was offered to make the first book adaptation of c.s lewis's much love fantasy uh, series of Chronicle of Narnia, but he was so dedicated to his film, he said, uh, no thanks. So he turned down Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because he was like, nah, I'd rather make a story where a child goes to a fantasy world and is given a gift for a specific purpose and at the end becomes royalty in that new land. Oh, they both do that? Well, I'm going to do the one that I wrote. <laughs> so that is a little bit of the background and history of the movie. Before we get into our reactions, uh, do want to share... Some fun facts. So this movie has so many fun facts, a lot of them having to do with um, the creatures, uh, largely Sir Doug Jones. He So Doug Jones is a very famous actor whose face you might not completely recognize, but you've seen him in a ton of things. He was in Hellboy, uh, The Shape of Water. Uh, he played both the fawn and the pale man in this movie. Um, and Doug Jones is really, really talented. He's also, uh, if you are a Fantastic Four fan, uh, he was the Silver Surfer. He was like the body double, basically, for the Silver Surfer. But yeah, so he's been in a ton of things. Um, but interestingly enough, uh, Doug Jones was the only person on set who did not speak Spanish. In fact, he learned all of his lines and Ophelia's lines in phonetic Spanish uh, so he could know how to speak. But as you could tell with those costumes, he couldn't hear anything. So he had to lip read. Like, he had to read her lips to understand like when his cues were. Um, and that's that, that's how he did it. Yeah, I had no idea that Doug Jones was both the, the Fano and the Pale Man and that he didn't speak Spanish because I've seen Doug Jones and a bunch of other stuff like you said, like Hellboy and all. Um, I recognized him from the DCCW shows as Deathbolt. And so I was like, huh. that guy is everywhere. Like he, uh, I, I just, I would love to see Coffee with he and Andy Circus. And just have no idea that I was actually watching both of them. Yeah. Because they're just in their mocap suits, <laughs> totally it's, green screen. It's actually both of them doing their best impression of each other. Well, and I was hyper aware in The Shape of Water that Doug Jones was the amphibian man. And I was like looking for him in this movie with the different costumes and i knew he was the pale man i just didn't know that he was actually like pan so i 
I, I was shocked when I read that. That was really interesting. And it's just a testament to his like physicality and the way that he's able to characterize these characters where he, he can't even like speak in some cases or hear in many cases. Uh, just a huge talent. Oh, absolutely. And like the way he was with the Pale Man is that they actually, none of that was CGI'd. Um, mm-hmm. They j- actually just like took out his actual legs because uh, they had like these prosthetics um, that allowed his front legs to like move like very like uncannily uh, mm-hmm. when he was the Pale Man. Uh, and they just like, I think they just green screened out his actual legs so that. Yeah, it would look more unsettling. Speaking of unsettling, uh, last little fun fact is that uh, Del Toro claims that uh, he had the pleasure of sitting next to uh, Stephen King uh, in a New England screening of the movie, and during the Pale Man scene, he made Stephen King squirm. Wow! And he said it was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. Quote, Guillermo de Toro. <laughs> so, those are some fun facts about the movie. Now, let's get into our reactions. So, Grayson, when was the first time you watched this movie? The first time and the most recent time, other than watching for this, was the year it came out. Um, oh, okay. Right when it went to um, DVD, I guess it would have been. And... Uh, yeah, I watched it at someone else's house, and I don't think I... I definitely... I know I did not fully appreciate it in the moment. I just thought it was super weird, and I don't think I was mature enough to really absorb the story. And so it was a whole different viewing experience this time. Um, but yeah, it had it had been 12 years since I saw this movie. I when I when So this was my first time watching this movie, mm. and like I said... Uh, I was not prepared for this. I was very surprised because when I saw the marketing for this movie way back in 2006, or probably 2007 because DVD releases were different back then, um, I just thought it was uh, a Tim Burton film, basically. I just thought it was like a Tim Burton, okay, it's dark and kind of weird, um, and it's just one of those movies that just does that dark and weird thing to be dark and weird. Uh, then I watched it and I was just very taken aback, not only by, uh, how the fairy tale aspect played into it, but how dark everything was in the real world. Like that bottle scene was like, I'm like, Oh, Oh, this is rated R. Okay. Um, gosh, I wasn't expecting any of that. And, uh, <laughs> In my time, uh, in like high school, early college, I had friends who were like super into the Nightmare Before Christmas. Like they mm-hmm. wore Jack Skellington clothes year round, and so I was like, "Oh, this is just a, something that my friends would probably like." So I, that's why I never saw it because you hate your friends. Because I hate my friends. Uh, <laughs> um, but I just, I just thought I think a lot of people probably just threw this movie in that box but it was so much more it was like really good and really sad like i wasn't expected to be so sad by the end of the movie it is a tough sell to be like it's kind of creepy uh all right it's really violent uh okay wait 
it's actually in a different language. Um, and super sad. <laughs> when can we watch it? <laughs> Uh, two tickets, please. Uh, but yeah, I, I, and I'm say, I'm sharing all this just because like my reaction, my expectation for this movie, um, was completely different than what the movie actually was. Mm. Uh, and I think you know the U.S. marketing especially was just like, look at this visionary director Guillermo del Toro is going to bend your mind by all these crazy creatures, and like you go for that, but then you get this really sad war story. Um, with really great payoffs and really great uh, story structure. So, like, I mean, I was impressed with the movie, but I was not expecting it at all. Yeah, no, it it's a shocker for sure. And uh, and also, um, I was expecting the little girl to be Pan because the movie's called Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, um, yeah. So it's basically called Pan's Labyrinth due to a translational um thing uh i'll read my research uh so the fawn uh played by doug jones is a mythical creature half man and half goat who represents nature um that's where the word fauna comes from and it's uh but pan is a specific greek god also goat-like who is generally depicted as a mischievous harmful and over sexual uh kind of creature uh, so not a creature that you'd be comfortable seeing earn the trust of a little girl. So in Spanish, the film, like we said, is called El Labyrinth. Actually, Grayson, can you say the name of this film in, in Spanish just more confidently than I could? El Labyrinth del Fano. Great. Uh, which, translate, which translates to the Fawn's Labyrinth. Um, but Pan was used for English-speaking audiences because the figure is more familiar than the Fawn. Um, but you'll notice that he's never called Pan in the film. That's another like misconception that I had about the film. Just like, oh, Pan is the girl. It's like, no, it's the goat, but not really. It's just, yeah. So yeah, I I didn't really understand the Pan's part when I first saw it either. Like I I knew there was like the goat man thing and and all that. I guess before I saw it in all of the marketing, I thought it was tantamount to like who made the movie. Uh, I thought it was like Lee Daniels Labyrinth. Um, (laughs) And it's not that at all. It's kind of like how the movie, the jungle book um, isn't really about a book in the jungle, but it's like a story of one of the tales that is found inside the jungle book or not a single book in that movie. Not one. No one reads. L- literature uh, yeah. is not there. No, I mean they're they're animals. Yeah, or how yeah. Inside Out isn't, you know, Operation the movie. Man, exactly what I was <laughs> gonna say. All right, now we're gonna go ahead and go into our segment known as Head Cannon, or in Spanish, uh, Cabeza Principal. Yeah, maybe, maybe, could uh, be. If we are wrong. <laughs> If you're wrong, let us know on Twitter. That's uh, that's basically our, our page for you to tell us we're wrong about something. <laughs> it's very um, helpful. Headcan is a part of the show where we share you unique ideas about the movie and untold stories based on evidence provided by the film. Now, Grayson, I'm going to let you mm-hmm. go first because that's what we should always do. Okay. Uh, what's your head Although cannon? this time, no, Ricky, this time I am confident no, there is no way. There is no way. 
way nope. that we have the same headcanon. There's no way. You wanted this. And maybe there's like a 5% chance. Okay, no, you, yeah. You, you. All right. All right, so I have two main pieces of headcanon, both of which oh. kind of contradict each other. But first one has to do with the actual labyrinth. In the story, they say that they opened up different portals from the underworld to try to find the princess, right? Right. I think that princess was actually the original princess from Oz. Oh, interesting. Because the way that the uh, the staircase spiraled down the same way that the yellow brick road spirals, especially with all the different uh, creatures and wildlife, um, I would say that it is connected to the Wizard of Oz. I like that. That's yeah. cool. That's my main one. Uh, yep. Second one being, this takes place in Neverland from oh, Peter Pan. Okay. Uh, it's Peter Pan's Labyrinth? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Uh, as we learned, Pan is like a title um, mm-hmm. because uh, when we watch Hook, it's just like, hey, I'm the Pan now because he wasn't actually Peter Pan, but he was the Pan who was the leader. Um, and so I think that that was the labyrinth was made to keep grownups out, mm-hmm. and which is why uh, the adult um, Vidal could not see. Uh, the fawn uh, because you know he wasn't a kid Uh, i think it was like a cloaking device to keep adults away from you know basically the treasure that lied in neverland (laughs) because for people who and i think it's basically the idea is like the labyrinth was made to for kids who couldn't find a happy thought um because happy thoughts are the way that you fly but if you're in a place or a time where you can't have a happy thought and you, but you still believed you could still get through if you went through the labyrinth and the labyrinth like we saw would unfold for you know those pure in heart i like that two follow-up points on that then is that tinkerbell could be the last surviving fairy mm-hmm. that didn't get eaten and Ooh. that in both cases they're always fighting against captains <sighs> i like it i like it a lot Headcanon. Sweet. And it did not encroach on my headcanon at all. I think that's the best kind. (laughs) (laughs) So this was a really difficult movie for me to do headcanon on because it is a very personal story, very serious story. I don't want to make light of any of it, but that's kind of what we do sometimes. So I was going to go with a very serious headcanon about like how they're actually starting in hell and this is the judgment period and the evil ones get like killed off and then they move on, but then she's able to move to like a happier afterlife situation. I abandoned that. Uh, That is not my headcanon. Instead, I went with the... Uh, headcanon with more levity, which is this is a live interpretation of the hit 90s cartoon, Ah, Real Monsters. <laughs> I think the most direct connection can be made uh, with Crumb uh, just because he's always carrying his eyeballs around. Uh, oh, I, I remember that being a, being a big point. So wait, then I started wondering. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. 
you can't just drop all real monsters. All real monsters, you know. Um, so for those of you who don't know, I do want to give you a quick refresher. All Living real monsters under a rock. <laughs> all real monsters was a '90s Nickelodeon show that was basically a Monsters University, the Nickelodeon mm. show. Uh, yeah, around fo- the same era as like Rocco's Modern Life, and right? A lot is yeah. Uh, um, it focused on Ickis, uh, Oblina, and Crumb. Uh, they attended a school for monsters under a city dump uh, to learn how to frighten humans, but a lot of them are bad at it. Uh, very much monsters, you. Uh, but I just wanted to share that and thank you for making that reference. But please don't want to yeah, yeah, yeah. stop your momentum. Continue. Yeah, Crumb got me thinking about it first because of the eyeballs. In Aria Monsters, he has to carry his eyes. In this reimagining of the classic cartoon, they're embedded in his hands. And Crumb is typically a much larger character, um, where in this he's very thin, mostly because of the curse, where he can't actually eat the food in front of him. Otherwise, he would look almost exactly like Crumb. Uh, Ickis is uh, like a little red lobster-looking guy. But if you look at his ears, they, they're they very close to the horns on Fano's head. Ah. Um, so And Ickis is kind of the, the ringleader most of the time and, and gets things going and kind of has everything under control and then loses control and has a temper problem like we saw with Fano. So I made that equivalent there. Uh, the big toad thing I associated with the Gromble because the Gromble would always like eat trash and a bunch of junk and was yeah. like this bigger character, similar color scheme even. Uh, and then the last major monster then is Oblina, which I like the idea that Ophelia is supposed to be Oblina, that she is actually a monster herself who was supposed to belong with them. And Oblino often in Aria Monsters would shapeshift. She would like turn into coat racks and canes, mostly cylindrical things. Uh, But she, she could shapeshift a lot of the time. The idea that uh, a princess has basically shapeshifted into something that no longer resembles where she came from uh, felt consistent with the themes that are set up for Oblina in Our Real Monsters. And their names both start with an O. So that's all that you, you should have just led with that. Oh, I, I only had to say that. <laughs> but with uh, those four primary monsters, uh, I was compelled to make the comparison. That is solid headcanon. I love it. <laughs> that's that's good. Nickelodeon's Labyrinth. <laughs> All right, now we're going to go into our segment known as Recast and Remake. Um, or in Spanish, look it up. Um, it's actually the same. It's crazy. <laughs> Call that a cognate. In Spanish, it's refundir. No, I'm not going to try. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to continue to butcher... A wonderful language. Uh, so, if this movie were to be made today, who would you cast, and uh, what would the storyline be? I it was really hard for me to want to recast anyone, um, right. especially since you don't have a ton of like Spanish speaking uh, scripts a in Hollywood. And I thought the actors were phenomenal. And because of that, um, I would like to kind of adapt this into an animated Netflix series where we ba- it basically gets like the uh, the 90s 
TV series treatment where if it is a darker source material, the TV series just kids it up. Uh, kind of like Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, the animated series, was much lighter. Beetlejuice wasn't trying to kill people. He's just like, yeah, I'm just kind of this mischievous kind of guy who's best friends with this other girl. Uh, so I would love to see a Pan's Labyrinth where uh, it's animated, uh, maybe even uh, stop motion style, kind of in the realm yeah. of Paranorman. Um, and it's just like a, a, a mini series where Pan does escape to the labyrinth and she learns all these different lessons, not about not only about herself and her former life as like a princess, um, but also her kind of coming of age and actually becoming the princess that they need her to be and not necessarily who they thought she was. Yeah. Nice. Out of respect to uh, the cast in the story, I'm actually just taking the angle of like, what if it was a different director, a different writer, uh, and it was like a, an English-speaking movie? What would it look like? Uh, for Ophelia, I would have Millie Bobby Brown. Mm-hmm. For the captain, I would have David Morrissey. Uh, he was in Walking Dead. He was the governor. He was also in an episode of Doctor Who where he thought he was the doctor. Oh, yes. Um, uh, and then for Fano, I would have Bradley Whitford because this would be written and directed by Aaron Sorkin <laughs> and all the dialogue will be while they're walking through the labyrinth. Just turn and talk, turn and talk, walk and talk with me. I love that. Aaron Sorkin's labyrinth. Very nice. Or more appropriately, Aaron Sorkin's Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Aaron Sorkin's West Wing of Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> so if Millie Bobby Brown is playing Ophelia and Aaron Sorkin is directing it, you could just call it Millie's Game. Oh, <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Oh, by the way, Fano had to be played by Bradley Whitford because of Aaron Sorkin. Of course. You know, it's yeah. obligatory. Yep. <laughs> It's in his contract. Be like, uh, you didn't do the thing I asked, <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, kiddo. Uh, great. <laughs> All right. Now we're going to go into our final segment where we give you our reasons to recommend. So, Grayson, why would you recommend Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth? I would recommend because it is a very touching story. Uh, it's a very personal story, like uh, we've touched on a couple times. And uh, I, I'm not sure if it comes through in the recording of this, but it was very difficult for us to actually like make jokes about this movie out of reverence for what this story actually is. That rarely happens with us. Yeah. Um, oh, like I respect this movie. And I recommend it for other people because, one, the practical effects mixed with the digital effects, you can't tell the difference. Um, it's pretty amazing. And the I believe you touched on it earlier. The acting is just uh, is across the board consistently excellent. Um, the story itself feels familiar in the sense that it is a fairy tale but is new in the sense that it takes place in a period of time that many, especially American audiences, aren't familiar with. So you're kind of discovering the landscape. Uh, and then it just builds out this fantastical world uh, from the mind of Guillermo del Toro. So there's uh, familiarity with intrigue and just 
well executed across the board. Uh, so it is uh, a very unique film uh, in, in all the right ways. If it's been a while since you've seen that, uh, I highly recommend that you watch uh, Pan's Labyrinth because it is a, uh, a journey for not just the characters in the movie, but for the audience watching it as well. I totally agree. This movie is, I, I did a ton of research largely in the form of interviews, um, and Guillermo del Toro really has this idea of making these adult kind of uh, fairy tales, where mm. I, I actually, and I say adult, like a lot of the fairy tales that we know, uh, you know, Snow White, Rapunzel, um, Sleeping Beauty, all have all in its origins have like a darker twist to it. Um, and with Disney, Disney's like kind of like lightened them up and did the Disney's version of these fairy tales, but then, you know, copyrighted their adaptation uh, because they did it different and they kind of made it a little bit lighter, a little bit sweeter. And it's almost like Guillermo del Toro said, you know what? Let's just go back to the source. Cause if it, it really feels like a really dark, really sad story, a fairy tale from the Brothers Grimm era of fairy tales, but the lesson is still intact um, of mm. just like how everyone is like telling this girl, hey, get out of those books, but no one can see why she would want to escape into the books anyway. It's just like, oh, yeah, like, but but also showing how like, you know, everything's terrifying and like how through the eyes of this girl, she might see the world a little bit differently. And why wouldn't she want to be like this hero who can make everything peaceful? This podcast should adequately prepare you to see the movie now, uh, because I went in not expecting the movie I saw, but I'm glad I saw it because it's good. I just liked it. I really liked it. I was pleasantly surprised and it's solid and definitely worth uh, a watch and a cry. <laughs> And that is our review of Pan's Labyrinth. Let us know what you remember about Pan's Labyrinth on Twitter. We are at Flashback Flicks. And a uh, quick share. Thank you all for sharing uh, your reactions to our Pierce review of The Breakfast Club at Declaration 14C. Sent us a picture from Ireland. We have listeners in Ireland um, mm. where they have breakfast rolls which is basically a breakfast club sandwich <laughs> i love it it's wonderful thank you so much for sharing it the this is why we have a twitter so you can share with us these amazing real things that we make dumb jokes about so uh thank you so much and of course uh the world's greatest detective, uh, VGC Kitty, uh, has been sharing some amazing headcanon. So if you want to be a part of the Flashback Flix community, definitely follow us over there on Twitter. Let us know what you remember about Pan's Labyrinth. And we would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. Leave a rating of five stars if that is what you so choose. Uh, but we would love it if you left a review telling us on a scale of one to five non-eaten fairies mm -hmm. um what would you what how how many labyrinths yeah i think that's a real question <laughs> how many labyrinths and in your view if you can include a, a compare and contrast between labyrinth and pan's labyrinth to let us know what your favorite movie where a charismatic maze creature attempts to steal a baby brother is uh 
It's a toss-up. It really is. Let All I have know. stuck in my head is Pan's Labyrinth Pan. <laughs> Uh, before the movie got really dark, I was just like, I can't wait until they get to the bog of eternal stench. Oh, no, it's the war. That's it. Everything's sad. Oh, no. What have I done? This is different. <laughs> I would love to see someone dub Pan's Labyrinth with David Bowie's voice over Fano, where he's just like, I need you to bring me the golden key from a frog's stomach. <laughs> And be sure to tune in next time right here on the Flashback Flix Retro Movie Podcast for a very special episode. Until then, remember to be kind and rewind.